Hello, Marvelites. You are listening to This Week in Marvel, episode number 519, the official Mother Truckin' Marvel podcast. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Lorraine Sink, Emissary of Hell. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> this is where we talk about what's happened to This Week in Marvel, whether it's games, movies, comics, TV, or just like in our yards with our spoopy decorations. Yes, Lorraine, we now have matching 12-foot-tall skeletons. Ours is named yeah. Skelly. We erected him this weekend. He's wonderful. He sits in our driveway. So it's a subtle thing that <laughs> someone has to look down our driveway to see this giant skeleton man blinking at them. It's wonderful. We haven't lit him. We didn't put his eyes on, you know, because his little eyes light up. So in the dark, it's just like this massive figure in the darkness. And we ordered takeout and our delivery guy audibly went. And then then was like, oh, my God, I saw this giant in your yard. I panicked. (laughs) So anyways, I feel like mission accomplished for Halloween because I've already scared an adult man. Nice. I'm still gonna make this packing tape ghost i did buy like a mannequin head because you basically wrap packing tape around a mannequin and then you cut it off and you seal it up and then you put it in the yard and it looks ethereal like if you have any great crafts that you're working (gasps) on for the halloween time you can tweet to at agent m and at lorraine sink we want to see them i will yeah freak the freak out yeah please let's see them But this week is New York Comic Con. Lorraine and I will not be there. But if you are going to be there, have fun, be safe, be awesome. I know a lot of our partners are doing some really cool stuff. Bottleneck Gallery is doing some virtual releases. They have some really great Spider-Man posters that I saw going up. Hasbro has stuff. Walmart is doing their Collector Con. Sideshow has some cool stuff going on. Vivi is doing some digital releases. We'll get into that a little bit later. But there's a lot of fun stuff happening in and around this fun week in October. Yeah, we have a lot of fun stuff on the show, including my new pal, Mackenzie Lee. She is a YA author. She worked on the Loki books, and now she has a new book, Gamora and Nebula, Sisters in Arms. She's fabulous. We talked to her in a little bit. Also, a great Instagram follow, 10 out of 10. She has a big St. Bernard, and he wears sunglasses sometimes. It's just great. Also, this week was the big season finale of Marvel Studios' What If. Holy moly, it's episode nine. What if the Watcher broke his oath? It is such a big old knockdown, drag out fight all over the multiverse. Definitely go watch it. Or if you haven't started the season yet, this is your moment. You can watch the whole ding dang thing Mm. right now, streaming only on Disney+. Plus. Go do it. It is so, so fun yeah also if you are super hyped about all things marvel studios what if we of course have the marvel must-haves over on marvel.com slash must-haves and you can find out all about the merch that's available there's some stuff from episode eight that was just put up what if ultron one some cool black widow shirts and ultron funko pop and much much more yeah oh while we're talking about disney plus marvel studios black widow is now available to all disney plus subscribers There's a new TV spot out and some posters. You can check those out on marvel.com or better yet, just head over to Disney Plus and watch Marvel Studios Black Widow. I am very excited to be able to watch this again from the comfort of my own home. Movies, aren't they just the best? They are the best, Lorraine. So dang good. You know, it's also good. Marvel's Wastelanders Hawkeye, which is also live now. The first two episodes are now available for the podcast. You can uh, actually listen to a preview on the twim feed so if you are subscribed to the show you probably saw it pop up and 
Hopefully you listened to it and got a little a little sneaky peek of what the show is all about. It's a little bonus episode to give you an exclusive look at, well, it's not a look, right? It's an exclusive it's listen. It's a listen. A little there listen. It is. So check that out. And of course, you can listen to Marvel's Wastelanders Hawkeye exclusively on the Sirius XM app or by subscribing to Marvel Podcasts Unlimited on Apple Podcasts and coming soon everywhere else. If you want to learn more about that, go to SiriusXM.com slash Wastelanders. Heck yeah, heck yeah, heck yeah. Shout out to our podcast team for working on this awesome series. It's just been so cool to see all these Marvel's Wastelanders podcasts come to life and for people to start being able to listen to them. All right, next up, Marvel Puzzle Quest is celebrating its eighth anniversary. I cannot believe it's eight years because I have been here for all eight of them, and that is bonkers. So the, <laughs> there's been a celebration for their anniversary this week. There's been a bunch of events going on, including a Let's Play Live, which you can watch on the Marvel Twitch channel. It was yesterday, if you're listening to this on Friday, so you can go watch it now. They're also releasing their anniversary character, which is Blob, and he is a sweet daddy baby. I love him. I love the glow up Blob has gotten in the Krakona, yes. where he's just gone from cranky and he wears the big like, wrestler onesie to now... He's like the bartender at the Green Lagoon. He wears wonderful shirts. He's got a little facial hair. He's like Sam from Cheers. He hangs out. He listens to your problems. He's a good dude. It's great. There's some other video game stuff happening this week. Of course, if you have a Nintendo Switch, Lego Marvel Super Heroes has launched this week, which is wonderful. You can find me throughout all the games in there, which is a delight. There's a cool blog over on the PlayStation blog site where that spotlights Marvel Spider-Man Miles Morales for Hispanic Heritage Month and, you know, a bunch more. Marvel games always kicking out some cool jams. The coolest of cool jams. All right, let's see what is going on with publishing. First up, we've got Marauders Annual Number 1. There's a new creative team on the book. Steve Orlando is taking over from Jerry Duggan, and he'll be joined by the artist Chris Lee. I mean, Jerry is just the best, and he's had such a great run. I'm really excited to see what Steve Orlando does. The first adventure is going to kick off in January with Marauders Annual Number 1 with a beautiful cover by Russell Dodderman, the sweetest human on the planet. I love Russell. I also love Steve. We just recorded an episode of Marvel's Pull List with Steve, and it was so funny. Throughout the recording with Steve, it was like that scene from Step Brothers where they're like, <laughs> did we just become best friends? Because <laughs> we had like deep history with Wizard Magazine, with certain Marvel characters. We were both huge fans of D-Man. We talked a lot about identity stuff and our fandoms. And it was pretty amazing. Uh -huh. I had a, a blast talking with Steve. So yeah, I'm excited because Steve, starting with the Marauders annual in January, and then when the series starts back up after that, it's going to be really, really cool. And the team... Is so good. Do you hear listen to this team? Bishop, Kate Pride, mm -hmm. Psylocke, mm -hmm. Dokken, mm -hmm. Aurora, mm -hmm. Tempo, mm -hmm. and Somnus. And Somnus is a really cool one because Somnus was first revealed in the pages of Marvel's Voices Pride, mm -hmm. has an amazing backstory and power and, and, and connection to Dokken and this character who lived a whole life and now gets to come back due to the Krakoan age and beautiful design by Luciano Vecchio. I'm very excited for this. 
I'm really excited to see what happens with this, especially coming out of Jonathan Hickman's Inferno series and and how that's going to shift the story and bring us into this new era. We'll look out for that in January. Also, this is very cool. You guys know probably by now we've talked about it a bunch, but Marvel Unlimited launched their new app, which is, as the kids would say, extremely cool. And there are a ton of new Infinity comics that are those really cool scrolling up and down style comics. There's a new one that's been announced, Ghostwriter Kushala. She is Ghostwriter, but she's an indigenous person. And I'm very excited for folks to check this out. It's written by Taboo and B. Earl. Taboo, of course, being from the Black Eyed Peas. He worked on the Red Wolf series. He's done some stuff with us previously. Also, artist Guillermo Sana, as well as the colorist of all colorists, Jordi Belair, editor Sarah Brunstad. Just a phenomenal team on the book. I'm very excited to see what they do with that. You can go read it right now on Marvel Unlimited. Of course, if you want to go get Marvel Unlimited, go to marvel.com slash unlimited and sign up because what are you doing with your life? There's so many <laughs> comics. It's just dumb. Don't not. It's so good. Kushala is an amazing character. She first yeah. appeared in the Doctor Strange and the Sorcerer's Supreme series, mm-hmm. which is by two of my favorite people in comics, Robbie Thompson and Javier Rodriguez. And she's cool. She was from her era, her time period, she was both the Sorcerer Supreme and the Spirit of Vengeance, and she's had some really cool adventures. And there was a Spirits of Vengeance Spirit Rider comic, which came out just like three months ago, which is now on Marvel Unlimited and is kind of perfect. You can read all that stuff oh, on yeah, Marvel Unlimited, diving you right into this new Infinity comic featuring Kushala, who is just great. And I've said it a million times, but I love Taboo so much. Yeah. He's so positive and smart and talented and successful and passionate he's great i love taboo yeah. uh, i love talking to him we just had him on marvel's pull list he's a ding dang delight and brl is great too he's the other side of that writing coin and i'm very excited for this yeah i mentioned earlier at the top of the show that vv our partner doing some really cool digital collectibles is doing some stuff this week alongside what's going on at new york comic-con and they've had a bunch of stuff out this week if you check out at vv underscore official on twitter you'll you'll be able to find them and everything that they're doing but they've released digital collectibles including the fantastic four number 13 comic which includes the first appearance of the watcher some ben riley spider-man digital statues which is perfect timing for the brand new Amazing Spider-Man Beyond series, the Daredevil number one digital comic, Captain Carter from What If, a Marvel Mighty collectible, and the Thanos number 13 digital comic, which is the first appearance of Ghost Rider. All of these are in the app. There's different rarities. There's, you know, like you, you got to get the drop within the first like 20 minutes of it releasing, which is usually around 11 a.m. Eastern but they are available in their digital marketplace afterwards. But it's a lot of fun, a lot of cool stuff. And one of the things I love about this is it's creating new fans, people who are just into digital collectibles, who are checking out these characters and these comics for the first time. So I welcome everybody who's celebrating all this stuff. All right. We have gone through so many wonderful things, but now is the time to talk with our pal Mackenzie Lee, author of Gamora and Nebula Sisters in Arms, as well as some of the Loki YA books. We've had lots of Gamora on the mind lately. Of course, she is in the most recent episode of Marvel Studios' What If? She's going to be in the Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy game. I think it's really interesting to get to see the lore of Gamora and Nebula's relationship 
through her eyes. So let's get into it and listen now. All right, this week in Marvel, we have a truly excellent friend coming to visit us today, Mackenzie Lee. Hi, welcome to the show. Hi, I love being a friend. (laughs) Yeah, welcome. Uh, Official friend of the podcast and of us personally now. It's always been my dream to be a friend of a podcast. It takes a lot. Just coming and hanging out, boom, friendship. So Mackenzie, one of the things we always like to start our conversations with, with our friends is to find out what are their Marvel origin stories? How'd you first learn about, get connected to, become a fan of the Marvel universe and characters? You know, the only thing I love more than being a friend of a podcast is having an origin story. (laughs) God, that makes me feel so fancy. My origin story is a little stumbling along the way, which is I was a nerd kid before it was really cool to be a nerd kid. And so I was very secretive about my nerdiness. I didn't want to ask anybody for help or or tell anyone that I was really into these things. And I desperately, desperately wanted to be a comic book reader. And I would go into comic book. There was one comic book store by my grandma's house that I remember going into. And it was like dimly lit and staffed and populated entirely by 40-year-old men with ponytails no offense to any any 40-year-old men with ponytails, but as a 13-year-old girl, not really my demographic. And I would pick up these comic books, and I didn't know who these characters were, and I didn't know what the story was doing. I, I realized now I was picking issues up in the middle of, of a run, but at the time I was like, I don't know how to read these. I don't know where to start. I don't know who to learn how to learn who these characters are. And I want to know, and I'm looking through them and thinking like, this looks so fun, and this looks like so something I would be into but I don't know how to read them. And I don't know how to ask anybody because I don't want anyone to know that I'm into this kind of stuff. And then when the film started coming out, that for me, like it did for a lot of people, became a foundation and a common language. And it sort of introduced me to to lots of these characters in this world and gave me an in and gave me a way to start reading comic books. And then now that there are Marvel stories across every medium imaginable, I am a Marvel fan in many, many dimensions. Which films did you most enjoy that kind of got you back into your Marvel experience? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think the the first ones I saw, like Iron Man was the first one I saw. Mm-hmm. And that was because my dad loved it. And he really wanted us all to love it. I think we were so kind of surprised and delighted that my dad, who's this, we, we compare him often. We say he's Ron Swanson meets Groot. He's, <laughs> he's very tall and very silent and has a very large mustache. But the fact that he was into this like swaggery, braggadocious, Robert Downey Jr., Tony Stark, Playboy billionaire. We're like, what is happening? So we all had to know what my dad was into. And and I really liked Iron Man. I don't think that would be my first round draft pick for a, a favorite film now that I've seen them all and known what the possibilities are. I mean, I love Captain Marvel so much because I love Brie Larson. And also that was one that I had, That was I think Captain Marvel was the first film that I had already read the comics by the time the film came out. And I'd read Kelly Sue DeConnick's comics and loved them. And so I I felt like I was going in with a foundation and I was going in as like, I felt like a real fan that I was like, I already read the comics, but also I love the movie. And I love my most favorite actual, like one of my most favorite films, but also my most favorite Marvel film is Thor Ragnarok. Cause I love Taika Waititi. I love what we do in the shadows. I love um, Jojo Rabbit. I've been a fan of his for a long time and seeing him get to bring his weird oddball sensibilities to Marvel and seeing Marvel kind of embrace the inherent wackiness of superheroes and the inherent absurdity, but still 
hold on to the sort of grandiosity of saving the world was it just for me, I was like, this was the synthesis of everything I love about about everything. Yeah, I, I love it because it can be super weird and over the top and silly and wild, but retain that heart and humanity. Taika is one of those filmmakers who really typifies all that. You you had to keep your nerd stuff secret. And so you, you sort of like bounced off of comics. What were you nerdy about? What were you able to stick to? I mean, there's got to be something that you were, you were hardcore nerding about. My big thing as a kid was Star Wars. And this is not a This Week in Star Wars podcast, so I'll try not to focus too much That's on this. Um, we make their comics. But I, yeah, and well, and it's all now thankfully Disney. So all yeah. my loves are collected under one umbrella. It's it's very helpful for like merchandising and vacation purposes. <laughs> so I I came of age really at a golden time for a Star Wars fan. And especially as like a young person who just felt like I had too many emotions all the time. I loved Anakin Skywalker and I related so deeply to Anakin. And uh, one of my favorite things to read as a kid was the Scholastic Book Orders had like a Star Wars book club. And the first series they did was Jedi Apprentice. And so it was about Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan and Obi-Wan's training to be a Jedi and about like their mission sort of leading up to the Phantom Menace. And I just like gobbled those up. And then they had a series called Jedi Quest that was between Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones. And I read those books over and over again. And the best way to get them was through the Scholastic Book Order Star Wars Book Club. And you would sign up and then every like three months or so, I think you would get the next volume sent to you. And my mother would not let me sign up for the book club because it was money. And you could just get them at the library, but the library didn't get them as fast as you could get them through the book orders. But you could sign up for one free month of book club every time the book orders came around. So I was doing the like 12-year-old con artist equivalent of creating lots of new email addresses to keep getting Hulu free trials, where I would keep (laughs) signing up for the free month and then get the stuff and then unsign up. And then the next time the book order came around, I would like sign up and unsign up. And so I got most of the series this way. And I told this story at a Disney dinner a couple of years ago at BookCon uh, when I was promoting the first book in the series, which is Loki. And I told this is like my charming nerd origin story. And immediately after these two lovely humans came up to me and they're like, hi, we run the Scholastic Book Order. And I was like, oh, no, how much money do I owe you? (laughs) And they were so lovely. But then I changed my tune and I was like, actually, I'm missing volume six and seven. I was wondering if you have any of those that you could send to me. But yeah, I was I was a Star Wars kid. I was a Star Wars fan fiction writer. If my 14-year-old self knew that I was admitting to anyone that I was a fan fiction writer, let alone on like a worldwide podcast, I would have changed my name and fled the country. I was so embarrassed <laughs> of that. And now it's something that I talk about pretty frequently. I love that, though, because there is a really fine line between fan fiction and sanctioned fiction the only difference is you know like the brand check mark in a way and like so many people start out writing fan fiction and then that is what teaches them how to write for the characters that they know and love so yeah and i i definitely didn't realize at the time but like fan fiction is what taught me how to write it taught me things like characters and story structure and cliffhangers and how to keep your audience engaged but it also taught me how to look at things I loved and identify things I maybe didn't love within them. Things like a lack of women or a lack of representation or even things like, man, it would have been fun to see this scene and this scene is missing from the movies or I wonder what happened between this moment and this moment. And so it taught me to think critically about story. And then if I didn't see things I wanted in the media I was consuming, I would go and create them. 
That's so cool. You mentioned Loki as your first book. How did you get connected and hooked up with Marvel to start writing these uh, YA prose novels? And how did Loki come together? I got hooked up through a good luck and good timing with years of hard work behind it. So my editor at Marvel Press had just sort of gotten the green light on a series she'd been pitching for a long time, which was she wanted a YA series about anti-heroes in the Marvel Universe as teenagers or as younger people, sort of earlier in their origin story than we've seen them. She wanted to do it with a little bit of a historical bend to it, and she'd just gotten the go-ahead from Marvel Press to hire a writer for it. And right at the same time, my book, The Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue, had just come out and was getting a lot of positive attention. And so she was reading it right at the same time and thought, this is the person I would like to write my anti-hero historical origin stories I got an email one day from my agent that said, hypothetically, would you be interested in writing for Marvel? And I wrote back and said, boy, I hope this is not hypothetical. That would be a very <laughs> cruel trick. And then, yeah, within within a couple of weeks, was on the phone and was pitching things. And uh, yeah, how Loki came together, though, specifically, he was sort of the first character in the, the series as it was pitched to me. It was, we're going to do three books, Loki plus TBD. I would have been on board if it had been Loki and literally anyone else. Like doing Loki was such a fun, cool thing. How it came together was actually a lot of panic and a lot of psyching (laughs) myself out. Um, First of all, I kept feeling like I was like, I'm getting paid to write fan fiction. And like, like as a kid, because most of what I read was these Star Wars franchise novels, I didn't want to be a writer. I wanted to specifically write these Star Wars books. And I wanted to write within these universes I loved. And so part of me like psyched myself out really hard because I was like, man, don't let down your 12 year old self like she's counting on you. But also I psyched myself out because I I was a pretty new Marvel fan. I like I said, I wasn't a comic reader as a kid. I was still just getting into the comics. And I was so afraid of getting called a fake fan, of getting called out for not knowing enough, for not having read every issue of Loki that ever existed. So I was like, okay, I got to read every issue that's ever featured Loki since his debut in the poetic Norse Eda in 10,000 BC. So I was trying to read the Norse myths and I was trying to read modern reimaginings of his character. And then I was also trying to read all the comics. And then I was trying to take all of those versions of Loki and synthesize them into my book. And I got so caught up in trying to make my Loki Jack Kirby's Loki and the Norse Loki and Neil Gaiman's Loki and Tom Hiddleston's Loki that I, it took me a long time to kind of find my way and realize that I got hired to write my Loki. And I ended up doing a ton of reading, but then I completely ignored and let go so that I could sort of make space in my brain for my own interpretation of this character. Well, if anybody hasn't read Loki Where Mischief Lies, go treat yourself because it's such a delightful story. But we have to talk about, of course, Gamora and Nebula's sisters in arms. Let's start off with what brought you to write that book. So like I said, Loki was always the first book in the series. And then it was, we'll kind of see from there. And between Loki and Gamora and Nebula, I had a new editing team I was working with. And we had sort of talked about, we're going to wait and see what characters are really popping with fans and who's standing out. And I think Infinity War had just come out when we started talking about who was going to be the next book. And Gamora and Nebula both had such strong appearances in those films and had had such a strong reaction that we started talking about doing those. And we also, in the TBD, 
we had sort of had, here's some ideas for who the next ones would be. And when I got my new editing team, one of my editors was very quick to point out that this is a very white male series. And I was like, I wish I agree. And so we wanted to get some female stories in there and some some female anti-heroes as well. So Nebula and Gamora kind of appeared right at the right time and came onto the radar of fans right at the right time. So thinking about, you know, you've seen them in the films and stuff like that. I want to, one, know, can you elaborate a little bit more about what the, the story is about? But also, like, as you're watching these, obviously, it seems like this is before you're watching the movies before you, you get the gigs. But do you have something in your brain as a creator, as a storyteller that says, oh, man, I love this character that I'm seeing on screen. I would love to tell a story because, as you say, Gamora and Nebula have such great stories in those films that it's hard not to think about what happened at this point in their lives. What was this story like and all that stuff? Yeah, they're particularly interesting characters because... With Loki, you have literally 10,000 years of history in and out of the Marvel Universe. Gamora and Nebula are not only characters that are just contained within the Marvel Universe, but also the sort of versions of them that people know best are are pretty new and really came from the, the James Gunn, Jen Perlman film. And the comics have sort of adjusted in a lot of ways to fit those characters because sort of their earliest incarnations in the, in the 60s were part of that sort of like weird space age Marvel era that most people probably wouldn't recognize them now. And they weren't in the Guardians of the Galaxy and they had different affiliations and different sort of goals and missions and later came to the versions that we know and love now. So it felt like there was a lot more space to tell a story and especially to tell more of an origin story. And there was a lot more ground that I could sort of stake a claim on for lack of a better term without worrying that I was sort of overlapping with somebody else's story or covering ground that had already been covered by other creators. And so I like lots of people responded very strongly to the sort of the mentions we have in the films of their childhood and of particularly the trauma and the abuse that shaped their childhood. And when you see them in the films, they've recognized that they have been shaped by this and they recognize that this has been done to them, but they're still kind of working to overcome the damage. And I remember thinking when I saw probably the first Guardians film, like, what was that process like? Like, how do you realize that you, because so often I think we're blind to the flaws of our parents or father figures in the case of Thanos. We tend to think of the way we grow up as just being like, this is just the way we grow up. There's no awareness of the sort of abuse and, and trauma you might be going through. And so I wanted to know, how did they recognize that? And we see them in the film sort of trying to form a tenuous alliance and trying to come together and trying to learn how to trust each other. And then my question was, so when did they start recognizing that was even an option? And when did they start realizing that this rivalry that has been sort of the defining feature of both their lives might be an artifice simply to keep them from teaming up because Thanos knows how powerful they would be if they team up together. So I essentially took a lot of these threads that I think a lot of people were were responding to and just backtracked and said, okay, so let's go there and let's talk about what it would have looked like and what were these initial moments of of self-awareness and awareness of the gaslighting and, and abuse that you've gone through in your life. That was a really heavy answer, but <laughs> it's fun. It's a super fun book, I promise. No, I mean, I think that's one of the things that makes it really fulfilling because in the book, it's like very butt-kicking, badass women. There's so many interesting women in this book, especially I just, that makes me very happy. And then to have that tenuous relationship is like, 
also emotionally exciting. So I really think that's wonderful. And that actually kind of reminds me of this quote, which is trust was the biggest lie in the galaxy. Oh, I think someone I think I know who wrote that. I think I've heard that before. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, you would almost like it's on the back of the book or something. It, It is. But that is like such a it feels like such a theme in the book to me. What do you feel like that means for Gamora and for Nebula? So both of them have been raised to only rely on themselves. And we see this in the films directly in that they struggle to trust each other, but also they struggle to trust everyone. And they've been sort of taught that to survive, you have to only bet on yourself and you can't believe that anyone else's intentions are good because that's how you get killed. That's how you get taken advantage of. And so all of these tenants that Thanos has raised them to be the defining sort of features of their identities as warriors um, and as as soldiers for him are based on the fact that they don't trust other people and they have to be self-reliant. So for them, the whole book becomes about sort of inverting this idea of self-reliance as the only source of strength and instead recognizing that trust and vulnerability and relying on other people can similarly be a source of strength. And also that sometimes people come through for you. It's a defining feature of their lives and their journey across so many of these Marvel stories is not just learning to trust each other, but learning to trust other people and learning to, we see it with Gamora and the guardians of the galaxy. Like she has to learn to rely on them and believe that they're going to show up for her. And, and when they say they're going to protect her and she's part of their found family, that they mean that, and they're not going to throw her under the bus as soon as they need to, to survive. They're going to show up for her and come back for her. You you talked about the sort of the journey that they go through and, you know, thinking about Marvel stories, a lot of these Marvel movies and you know, people say like, oh, superheroes and blah, blah, blah. But like superheroes is just a, an element of it. These characters are just an element. These stories can fit into so many genres and, and really like take up space in so many different ways. Is there a specific genre that you would sort of say this fits into? It's obviously a spacey kind of story, but For those of our listeners who are like, I really like this kind of sci-fi story, or I like this kind of book when I read it, where would it fit in? This book is very much a space Western. And part of that came from, we had gone into this series talking about wanting to have a historical bend to it. And so Loki spends about three fourths of the book in uh, Victorian England solving murder mysteries. And when we came to this one, I still wanted it to have sort of a historical feel to it without actually setting it on earth it's it's very much a sci-fi novel still and it's on an imagined planet but i i grew up in the west uh in the american west and i kind of grew up among the red rock and ghost towns and abandoned mines and i grew up very familiar with this myth of the lone gunman american cowboy and then as i grew up and started to become a more critical reader of history in particular and of, of my own history i started to realize how many people had to be exploited and how many things had to be destroyed in order for that myth to exist and and how much of this idea of this sort of like brave frontiersman forging a new land and manifest destiny and all that was built on exploitation of native people and of labor and all of these different things and and I wanted to write about that. And uh, thankfully, Marvel was super receptive when I came in and I was like, I want to write about strip mining and environmentalism and and the myth of the American West. And so, yeah, it, it draws a lot of inspiration from the American West. It draws a lot of inspiration from other space Westerns that I love, like Firefly, but just kind of these dead, dried up, desolate planets where it's a daily struggle to survive. 
I do love that. And I I know you've written a lot about, in all of your work, you sort of are attracted to those historical timelines or telling those more historical kinds of stories. And it's also fun because you are kind of getting to do that with Gamora and Nebula's timeline in a way. So how did you sort of choose where to place them in their timeline as we sort of know them as characters in the Marvel Universe? So like I said, I knew I wanted to go backwards and pick up some of these sort of the earliest moments in their journeys of of self-awareness and of developing a sense of self separate from Thanos and the identity that had been sort of ascribed to them by him. There is a moment in the comics where Nebula and Gamora are pretty young. They're on a mission with Thanos and Nebula in a sort of misguided attempt to impress him and to prove that she's, you know, as good as Gamora kind of rushes into a fight and ends up getting caught in this sort of very obvious trap. She gets caught in this energy net and then Thanos and Gamora kind of fight their way through and they get to her and she's like, great, you're here. You can save me and you can free me from this. And Thanos's response is, no, like you got yourself into that. You can either die or get out of it. And Gamora leaves her a knife and they leave her and she ends up cutting off her own arm to survive. And they're not cybernetically enhanced yet. And so that's kind of the first time Nebula has a prosthetic she's dealing with. And I just remember reading that moment in the comics and being like, oh my God, like that's so, I think it's so emblematic of this relationship that they have with Thanos, this relationship they have with each other and this mentality they're in of like, kill or be killed and you can only rely on yourself to survive. And so that moment for me became kind of a a cornerstone. And I wanted to write about the direct aftermath of that moment. So I was like, there is no way you could survive something like this Whichever one of the sisters you are, whether you're Nebula, who has to cut off her own arm to survive, or you're Gamora, who has to leave her sister there and then see her have to do this incredibly traumatic thing to survive, there's no way you walk away from that without questioning how you've been raised and without questioning your principles and your tenets. And so it created sort of, it put cracks in their foundation. And that moment for me became a real like touchstone moment that then the book is is set a couple of months after that. And they're both sort of dealing with the fallout of that both in their relationship and in their larger lives as warriors for Thanos. Very light book. You know, like, <laughs> I, I promise it's smiling. fun. Our twin fans love their comic book lore, and there's some really cool stuff that's some deep cut stuff from Gamora's sort of early comics days. Can you tell us about some of the characters that are in the book from the Marvel Universe? Yeah. So I went into this pitch meeting with my team at Marvel saying, you know, I, I want to do a space western and... I want to talk about this theme and this theme. And one of the things I brought up was I said, I want to talk about how religion was, again, it's a really fun book, I promise, but how religion was used as a tool to exploit and manipulate vulnerable populations while giving them sort of a a sense of belonging and community and, and strength that was maybe a little bit false sometimes in the American West. And I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, so you can extrapolate what you want from from that. But I I kind of brought this in and said, this is a theme I would love to explore. And I, I thought it was going to be so off the wall to be like, let's talk about religion in Marvel. And instead, one of the people in the room said, oh, do you know about the Universal Church of Truth? And I was like, I don't. Please tell me everything. And turns out not only is that sort of an existing antagonistic force that already existed in the comics, but Gamora has really personal early ties to them where sort of her initial appearances in the comics were part of a team to take down Adam Warlock and the Magus who are sort of the deity figures of the Universal Church of Truth. And so 
it was kismet in a lot of ways. I was like, oh my gosh, like I brought in this theme thinking it was going to be so off the wall and then it already exists within the Marvel universe. So it was fun to, it was fun to write about exploitive religion. That sounds terrible, but I was so excited it already existed and so excited that there was already this lore that I could draft upon and that Gamora in particular had such strong roots in, in the universal church of truth. My other favorite is a comic I got directed to at this pitch meeting as well, which is just called Thanos. Oh, it's the Jason Aaron series. Yeah, the Jason Aaron Thanos, he talks about Thanos's origin story in a lot of ways and his sort of, I was going to say anti-hero origin story, but I think he's just straight up a, a villain, his villain origin story. Um, and one of the defining relationships in Thanos's young life is his relationship with the personification of death. And he has this obsessive friendship, sort of quasi one-sided romantic unrequited love with this personified death that he like hangs out with. And uh, that was so creepy and cool to me and explains so much about Thanos's whole sort of ideas about order and death and chaos in life that then become his sort of defining tenets for, for every choice he makes. And so death is also in the book. And she, I think that sort of added element and playing around with the reality and the corporealness of her for, for Thanos, but also for the other characters in the book became a really fun kind of experimental element to play with. Just the idea and the the sort of depictions of the girls like sitting and hearing the stories is so creepy. So you, you get to bring in some cool elements from the comics. I love the Universal Church of Truth. It's a terrifying, like when you sit back and think about it, they're awful. But then on the flip side, I imagine you also get to add to the Marvel Universe. You get to introduce new characters and, and originate new ideas and characters that are just now part of the tapestry of these. Can you share some of you know the, those that fans can look out for as they read? Yeah, I will say that's maybe the coolest thing is that I am actively creating canon for Marvel. Like, as you started saying that, I just got this big grin on my face because it just hits me sometimes. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the coolest job in the whole world. If I can backtrack slightly to Loki too, the kind of true enormity of the coolness of getting to create characters to populate these worlds hit me one time when someone directed me to a Tumblr post that a fan had made about Loki and a, an original character that appears in Loki, whose name is Theo. And they had done this like fan theory family tree directly linking Theo to Peggy Carter and then to Sharon Carter, which it's not sanctioned, not canon. But the fact that somebody had done that, I was like, oh my gosh, like people are thinking of my characters as real characters, like they're connecting them to the real characters. And then I'm like, tell me your characters are the real characters now. And then my head exploded. <laughs> but yeah, so it's, it's really, it's really cool. That's what I'm saying. So in the, in Nebula and Gamora, they're on this planet that has been strip mined down to nothing, essentially, and has been strip mined for this renewable energy source that exists underneath the surface of the planet. Um, and the people on the planet have had to essentially destroy their own home in order to survive these indentured servitudes that they've been forced into. And they sort of can't work hard enough to get out of them. It's a broken system designed to keep them trapped, essentially. And so Gamora ends up falling in with a group of women who are rebelling against this, who are trying to change this and advocate for better labor laws and, and things like that, but also who are trying to save their planet before it's too late and who still believe that there's a chance to get it back to what it was. And so Gamora's main ally in this is a woman named Versa Lux, who is a, she drives one of these like big digging trucks that creates these tunnels that go down into the planet so they can mine, mine out the resources and Versa comes from a family of rebels and she has 
mothers who were sort of instrumental in getting this movement started to get the planet back to what it is. And so Versa, much like Gamora and Nebula, is sort of dealing with the familial legacy and and trying to decide how much she wants to be a part of it and also struggling with how people are looking to her and how they perceive her because of the actions of her parents and how to be her own person when she exists within this legacy of strong ideology that she's not sure she agrees with. So yeah, she's probably the main secondary character in the book. So something just like struck me, which is that you started out writing fanfic about space rebels. And now you're writing (gasps) Marvel books about space rebels. We've done it full circle. It comes full circle. My God, I've just blown my own mind. My my story has come full circle. I can retire. Really and truly, congrats on the book. Everybody go read Gamora and Nebula Sisters in Arms. It's phenomenal. Everybody go follow Mackenzie on the internet because she's a delight. And thank you so much for hanging out with us. Thanks so much for having me. Big thank you to Mackenzie Lee, again, author of Gamora Nebula, Sisters in Arms, which is out now. Yeah, get it wherever books are sold. Just put your face right into that book. Just slam your face over and over again into those pages (laughs) and absorb all the words. That's, uh, as I understand it, how one reads a prose novel. That's how you do it. No questions, except for this question of the week. So next week, we're going to have some folks on from Fangoria. Some friends of ours who work on that wonderful publication all about horror and spoopy stuff, which is perfectly timed for the Halloween season. The only season matters because it's October now, so no one can get on to me about my obsession. All right. So for the question of the week, Ryan, what do you think? Should we go fangy characters? Yeah, let's go vamps. Let's go. Your Who's your favorite fangy Marvel character? That's not a that's those are not teeth. You're you're putting on a mustache. Uh I sometimes use my microphone cord as a mustache because every day is Halloween and I'm Ryan. With a mustache. It's a me, Ryan. Right. Uh so favorite Fangy Marvel character, of course, it's gonna be hard to top Blade, because he's so perfect. Kuchakoo. He's cool. What about Deacon Frost? Ooh, Deacon Fro. Dick Fro, yeah. Jubilee was a vampire for a little while. Storm was a vampire for a little while. Those are really cool vibes. I love our version of Dracula. I think he's really cool and, and he's doing, especially right now in the pages of Avengers and, and surrounding that stuff, doing some really cool stuff and messing with Wolverine. So yeah, there's there's a whole bunch more. Y'all out there, let us know. You can tweet your answers using hashtag this week in Marvel. Email them to twinpodcast at marvel.com or send a message to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash this week in Marvel. And please, please, please make sure you both use the hashtag if you post it on Twitter and tell us it's okay to read on the show. Send us your fangy babies and let's move on to last week's question, which was who are your favorite siblings in the Marvel Universe? And the answer, of course, was me and Ryan. Oh, My brother from another mother. Mm-hmm. But we do actually have some answers from y'all, Real including answers. Matthew Sell, at Sir underscore superhero, who said, Carnage, Scream, Riot, Lasher, Phage, Agony, and Sleeper. One big not-so-happy family. Those are, of course, all symbiote siblings, and they're all gross and nasty and murder, murder, murders. 
those are not so much siblings as they are ooze people. But that's fine. No judges. Can, uh, we, next up- can we petition for everyone at Marvel to now call them ooze people? Yes. Because that would make me like them even more. Next up, Adrian at Spider Boy Adrian says, Peter Parker and Ben Riley, technically speaking, siblings, kind of twins. Their dynamic is complicated, but very, very interesting, even if it did turn upside down for a while. Yeah, I don't know. I guess kind of. Yeah, I mean, clones. I'll take clones. Also, internal strife, strife between the two of you, definitely a sibling vibe. So Strife and cable. There you go. Oh, well, mm-hmm. yeah, th- that is a big sibling vibe. I think I've been crushing on them forever because of the big suit of armor. Anyway, Adrian, if you haven't yet, please check out Amazing Spider-Man for Spider-Man Beyond. It is so good. You get lots of Ben Riley and some Peter Parker stuff in there. Andrea at Strange's Dahlia says, Thor and Loki, they represent the real relationship of brothers. In my mind, they are still together in Asgard and Loki is always pranking Thor along with Sylvie. Aw. Hmm. Nora at LT Track 12 says, Thor and Loki, the constant bickering and fighting while still having a strong bond is so realistic. Loving your sibling, even though they're annoying as bleep, bleep. really sums up sibling affection. Yes. <laughs> I really do love in Marvel Studios Thor Ragnarok when he's like, and he turned into a snake. And then the snake was like, I love snakes. That whole Thor going off about his brother messing with him i was like oh yeah that captured the experience loved it speaking of siblings this is a message to my brother derek who listens to the show come up and visit us you big ding dong we got a <laughs> we got we got a spare room find that week come visit us all right dan buswell at daniel buswell says it has to be t'challa and shuri the way they are so powerful but in their own way oh i love that next up we have polly bear wagon driver who says I would have to say the Guthrie siblings, Cannonball, Hus, Icarus, Ario, and Jeb are all powered, and the family powered or not is all supportive of each other. Also, the combination of the five of them alone would make a decent team. Extremely solid. Also, I imagine they all have like really thick accents. Oh my God. Like real Southern, like deep South sounding. Oh, and when they get together... That's love a great it. one, Polly. Thank you for that one. I really love that one. At 27-sided Polygon says, I really liked when Vision had synthesoid twins, Viv Aww. and Vin. Even though they were only siblings a short while, I hope Vin can be brought back into the MU somehow. So much more to explore with this character. That just made me so incredibly sad. Yeah. It's a great answer, but I am very sad. Next up, Raf Kaloyan, MD, at Raf underscore MD. Gotta be Colossus and Magic. The raw and natural emotion of their story was always strong, and the storylines that spawned from their bond. Oh, that's a nice one. Also, throw Mikhail in there, their other brother, who is just a very bad person. Y'all should be reading the pages of X-Force if you are not. <laughs> Andrew Monahan at Monahanna says, I love Ilyana and Peter as much as the next X-Fan, but... I've got to go with Wiccan and Speed. Healthy queer representation in superhero comics? We love to see it. We Aww. sure do. Heck yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mishari Al-Rashid at GTMQ8 says, Seems like people forgot about Scott and Alex Summers. Very complicated siblings with great backstory. We 
could never forget them because they are two blonde boys having problems, just crying their dangerous tears. <laughs> uh, and don't forget about Gabriel, aka Vulcan, the yes. other like super powerful, very angry sibling who um, w- was first appeared in X Men Deadly Genesis, who's a great character. Showed up yeah. a little bit during the Krakoan era. I want to see more Vulcan too, because yeah, like yeah. you say. Some really interesting, fun, complicated stuff with all of them. Richard Eugene Ruiz at Rico underscore Ruiz says, Franklin and Valeria Richards, their interactions as well as the advice from Uncle Ben make me feel like these kids with a famous dad have everything they would need to find their own success. Franklin's deteriorating power is a great concept. I have to say that Franklin Mm. and Valeria are amazing because they're like these kids that you would think would sit in the shadow of Reed Richards, who is this immense genius, but they're both just like, oh, dad, that's so cute how you're smart and are stretchy. We could control the world with our minds. (laughs) All right, we've got a great email in here from William R., who says, good day, Twim hosts. And it's one of William's multiple emails he sent us this year. He says, it is truly time for tempo. I hope that was a good read, William. Time for Tempo, as she'll be joining the Marauders in Marauders Annual Number 1 of the Steve Orlando run. What great news from the growing love of Tempo fans old and new who voted for her in the Hellfire Gala. William says his fingers are crossed for another one next year. Ours are as well, William. William continues saying, now to the question of the week, and I'll keep this in the theme of Marauders. My favorite siblings are definitely Celeste, Mindy, Sophie, Esme, and Phoebe, the Stepford Cuckoos. Sisters who are young clones, now daughters, of Emma Frost at the start of the Krakoan era. They know how to do incredible things like providing lost memories or even wiping ones, providing long-distance telepathy for all mutants akin to a phone call. They even share their own sense of individual fashion, and they love to have a good time dancing on Mars. And William continues talking about some great stuff that they did recently with helping Wilhelmina Kensington in issue number 23 of Marauders was just to show how much they're willing to look after and support mutant and non-mutant women in order to overcome their darkest moments. I hope they'll join Kate's new roster when the second tour of Marauders sets sail in January. My alternate answer would have been Emma and her siblings Christian and Cordelia and Adrian Frost, but there's a lot of mess to clean there. Uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 William, all of that is very true. Now, William also asks us a spoilery type question about the Hellfire Trading Company, which we will not be getting into at this time. But William, we appreciate the question and the inquisitiveness of your letters, as always. Finally, William says, welcome back, JMI. Indeed, 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 even though James somewhere else this week. Whoa, breaking news from the New York Public Library. Beginning today, all late fines have been eliminated going forward, and all prior late fines or replacement fees have been cleared so that everyone gets a clean slate at the library. That is amazing. Please, everybody, go support your local libraries. Next comes up This Week in Marvel. Yes, this episode of This Week in Marvel is produced by Alexis Williams, Zachary Goldberg, Isabel Robertson, Lorraine Sink, and Ryan Panagos. Our audio development manager is Brad Barton. And Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. Special thanks to Husk's Exfoliating Skincare. Husk, the character who exfoliates, is pretty much her whole thing. Husk. Oh, boy. I'm Ryan. I'm Lorraine. This is Marvel. Your universe. Your universe.